You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today, I'm speaking with Deborah Ashby about learnings from Florence Nightingale. <music> Deborah Ashby is the director of the School of Public Health at Imperial College London. And that's a pretty nice college. I know a lot of people are coming from that and lots of really, really great statisticians. She holds the chair in medical statistics and clinical trials and also was a founding co-director of Imperial's clinical trials unit. She is currently also the president of the Royal Statistical Society, a society with lots of lots of well-known statisticians in it. She has a really, really interesting career, as she also said, on the UK Commission on Human Medicines and also acts as an advisor to the European Medicines Agency, the EMA. She has been awarded lots of lots of different times and recently got elected to the Academy of Medical Science. Now, Deborah will actually speak at the next PSI conference. She will be one of the two keynote presenters there. And in her presentation, she will pay a tribute to Florence Nightingale. If you have never heard about Florence Nightingale, She is a really, really influential statistician and, and nurse and politician and lots of, lots of other roles that she played. And we'll dive into that in this podcast episode. If you actually like this podcast, please tell your colleagues about it. I want to have as many people as possible uh, benefiting from it. I just got a reply from someone in California who listened to it and um, was really um, amazed about it helped her. So maybe you can help others by sharing this podcast. And by the way, you can not only listen to it through your browser, you can listen it through your smartphone, through Spotify, through YouTube. There's lots of different channels you can listen to it. The podcast is produced in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the ever-growing video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. If you attend the conference, by the way, you will become a member anyway. So just come to Barcelona, listen to Deborah Ashby and become a PSI member. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome, Deborah Ashby, to another episode of The Effective Statistician. Nice to have you here. Nice to be here. <laughs> very, very good. So Deborah is giving the keynote uh, speech, one of the two, at the next uh, PSI conference. And one particular lady will have a 
big influencer of that, and that is Florence Nightingale. What impresses you about her, and why will you talk about her at the upcoming conference? Well, there's a one very good reason for talking about her at the upcoming conference, which is this is the year that we celebrate 200 years since she was born. She was born in 1820. So we like celebrations, we like parties, why not celebrate? Very good reason. <laughs> Indeed. So the question is, well, why should we celebrate? Most people know Florence Nightingale first and foremost as a nurse, and she's known as the Lady with the Lamp. But to statisticians, she's also known for something very special as a statistician. And the most special thing is that, as far as we know, she was actually the first female fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, which back in the 1850s was really quite a special thing. And that tells us that actually that, that nursing was only one aspect of what she did. So, so what are the other aspects that she got into this position for? Well, If you look back at her education, she actually studied mathematics before she ever studied nursing. She had to argue with her father, who really wasn't very keen, but in the end he gave in and let her study maths. He was much less keen later on when she wanted to study nursing. And so she had this sort of numerate background behind her. What then happened was she trained as a nurse and she went off to the Crimean War, where she did some nursing. But being an observant person, she soon started querying what soldiers were dying from and started collecting data. And so she started she basically using her mathematical abilities to actually think beyond the day-to-day -day problems of having sick soldiers and to work out what the causes of death were. And then she used that to try to do something about it. Later on, when she came back to the To, to England, she then turned her attention to things that were going on in London hospitals. But she drew very much on her understanding both of health and of numbers and of data in order to improve things. Wow. So, so she really stepped outside of her area of nursing and leveraged her, her skills, her, her background, her education to do something, you know, much more impactful. Exactly. Or you could say she stepped outside of being a mathematician to become a nurse, but then came back to using the maths. But either way, she was always motivated in actually having an impact. And actually, one of her favourite quotes, it wasn't her quote, but it's one she used quite a lot, is that education is not to teach, is to teach men not to know, but to do. And what she meant by that was education for its own sake, she wasn't terribly interested in. She saw the point of education to enable people to do something and to do, I think from what she's done, we can say it's to do good. She was very motivated by helping other people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that that speaks to exactly kind of these motivational points that Daniel Pink speaks about, yeah, so, so you need to have purpose, you need to have uh, hone in on your skills, your, your mastery, have, you know, leverage that skill for, for a bigger purpose. And she had the autonomy and the drive to move these things forward. But I think the latter one is especially interesting because at the time, being a woman, being a nurse is not kind of a 
specifically prominent position to be in and, you know, to have a big impact. And I think there's some parallels actually in some statisticians that I talk to on a daily basis that say, well, we are, you know, I'm not invited to this meeting. I would like to contribute here, but, but I don't get into the relevant discussions. And, um, some people think like, well, the statisticians are just the, yeah, the consultants, the implementers. Um, but don't get into these more strategic discussions to have bigger impact. And I think many statisticians are in a much better position to have an impact and, and to influence than uh, Florence Nightingale at her time. So what do you think we can learn from her in, in terms of this influencing regard? Well, I think you're, what you've just said is a really good analogy because Florence Nightingale could have said, well, I'm just a woman. My parents don't want me to study. I'll just sit at home and do embroidery or whatever women did. Actually, she was scathing about the wasted opportunities for women. But she had a clear view of what she was trying to achieve. And yeah, I thought quite hard about how she managed to achieve it and why. I think we, we should note that she did have a privileged background. She was from quite an affluent family. They could afford for her to study. And actually, her grandfather was an MP, so she understood politics. So I think one of the things I would observe is that although she couldn't herself go off and become a politician, for example, she understood the wider context. She understood how other people thought. And then she worked with that. So as a statistician in a company, for example, you need to understand what motivates the company, what motivates the senior people in the company. Because if you don't work with that, you're not going to get anywhere. But then she wasn't afraid to speak her mind. I mean, in Florence's case, she actually wrote a lot. She was ill after she came back from the Crimea. And so she more or less took to her rooms and didn't go out very much. But she wrote and wrote. And she wrote to anyone she thought was important. She said exactly what she thought. I think we would call it speaking truth to power. And she pursued things if they were important. And I think that shows that you don't have to be the most senior person in an organisation to have influence. So what I'd you know, Absolutely. If you've, got a point, point, sorry, if you've got a point to make, then you need to say it, you need to write it down, you need to argue your case with other people who are influential and you might, in the end, have a better effect than if you'd just gone and shouted or had a more senior position but not thought through your case very well. Yeah, but I think it's there's a couple of different steps. I think first is having this willingness to drive change and not being there left alone, you know, and saying, you know, just say, I don't have power, I can't change things. And but but step out of this mindset and and step up and what you mentioned is having a clear goal for yeah. yourself that you want to achieve is I think also a really really important thing because if you go into something and and you enter into a communication being it a negotiation a presentation or whatsoever if you're not clear on what the goal is that you want to achieve you can't be effective because effective communication is just measured by reaching a goal. And if you're not clear on the goal in the first place, you can never, you know, be influential. I think the, let's, let's talk a little bit more on, on this politics part. So you mentioned she learned 
um, you know, from from a PM, so so from uh, from a member of parliament, uh, MP, how you do politics. I think politics is often kind of associated with a lot of negative connotation, but. If you think about politics, what does that mean for you? And what, what could have, have meant for Florence Nightingale? Well, I think she understood that politicians were very important in decision-making and the kind of problems that she was concerned about, which was health and she was concerned about the state of the prisons and she was in, concerned about sanitation in India. And I think she would have seen that the politicians, the members of parliament, were the people that had the power there. She was actually very scathing about their education. One of the things she cared about was that they hadn't had a good statistics education. So she she thought that if they were more numerate, they would do a lot better. And she actually tried to set up a chair of statistics at Oxford. Not, And the reason she was doing that was that's where many of our politicians were educated. Indeed, it's where many of our politicians still are educated. And what she wanted to do was to fund a post that would help train the politicians in good statistical numeracy. She didn't succeed because Oxford wouldn't take the money. And again, I think the analogy for people in pharmaceutical companies are working with the more senior clinicians or your board of directors or the people that have the power to say how money is being spent, whether that's on a particular project or whether that's setting up a particular biostatistics function. But she understood where the power and the decision making was. And then she tried to work to influence those people. I think that is a very, very relevant point that if you want to be influential as a statistician, you need to help the others also mm -hmm. understand you. And, and of course, speaking in plain language helps a lot. But also training the others on, on better understanding data and, and you know, Increasing the data literacy is a really good point. And it's not just within the companies. I think it's also, if you think about prescribing physicians, about people that, you know, European leaders that write guidelines, about um, medical associations, um, there's lots of other stakeholders and key decision makers that would benefit a lot from getting more trained in, in statistics. Absolutely. And so, so that's another nice parallel between kind of the work of Florence Nightingale and, and, and our work. Mm -hmm. There's one other thing that uh, Florence Nightingale is uh, very famous for, and it's I think it's a key still for us statisticians today in terms of communication of our data. And that is... She's also famous for really powerful, in a powerful way, visualize, visualizing her data. Hmm. If you think about these visualizations of, for example, the, um, the reasons for, uh, fatalities in, in the, in this war, what do you think statisticians could learn from her today? The first thing I would say is if you can look at the visualizations, then do. It's hard on a podcast to describe them, but some of them are almost works of art. And if ever you're visiting London, then visit the Science Museum, and in particular, the Winton Gallery of Mathematics, where you will see Florence's charts on mortality actually displayed. I think the messages I would take is that, firstly, she saw the value in communication. 
I mean, she had a clear message she was trying to convey in this case about the causes of death of the soldiers, which had more to do with disease and poor circumstances. Relatively little of it was actually from, we're not, we're not surprised if, if soldiers die from battle injuries, but actually that wasn't the bulk of it. So she knew she needed to convey that. She thought very hard about how to do that. And she developed the Coxcomb plots that help her to put it across. She obviously also understand what her audience would accept because the kind of graphic that works for one audience may not work for a different audience. If you've got a statistical scientific audience, then actually using things like forest plots for meta-analysis are a really good convention. If you're trying to do it to an audience who are not familiar with those, that may be a disaster. So I think knowing what you're trying to communicate, choosing an appropriate mechanism for doing it, and then actually engaging the imagination so that people actually look at it and try and work it out are all really good tips. Yeah, completely agree. I think the context is really important for for uh, visualization. Nowadays, it's kind of do you display that on a big screen, or is it displayed on a on a laptop, or is it even displayed on a you know iPhone? Mm. These kind of things have an impact on on how you design a presentation, or is it part of a manuscript? So does a Visualization needs to be standalone and have, you know, lots of descriptions around it. Or is it part of a oral presentation where you just want to have the key parts of it and, you know, not a lot of footnotes and second and third title and things like that, because that's what the presenter can speak to. So having the, the audience in mind, having the uh, context in mind is really, really important. You mentioned that that's also, there's, it's some, some type of art in that. So, so looking into these visualizations and we'll link to them in the show notes, you can see there's a, there's a beautiful aspect of it. What do you think about that aspect for, let's say, modern day visualizations? I think there's, we could learn a lot. Those were, must have been hand drawn. And I think, you know, certainly when I was a younger statistician, we were fairly limited by technology and reproduction. But as you say, we've now got access to displaying things on great big screens or on our laptops or on our um, lots of visualizations actually used as part of the apps on our phone. And um, we can, it has to be appropriate to size, but it also gives us much more flexibility. And something we can also use is something you can interrogate so that you can actually delve down to the detail or that you can change the way that it's presented so we can use flexibility. But any of them need to be appealing and engaging because otherwise you just flick on and go on to the next thing. So I, th- I think there's a lot we can, we don't have to do it the exact way she did it because we're working within different con- constraints and opportunities. But I think the idea that you should be drawn into it to look at it and think about it is, is a really good lesson. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So in terms of in terms of the in terms of the beauty of um having such a nice visualization, you wanna have people interacting with it. And people rather look at something that is beautiful mm-hmm. and 
enjoy looking into something rather than into something that the colors don't match up and it just looks kind of ugly and and busy and things like that. I think there's a lot of beauty also in simplicity. And the simplicity has also helps you to reduce the cognitive burden of the people that consume the visualization. So that's another piece that we, we can learn from it. I agree that, you know, today we have uh, lots of visualization software, all kind of different things that we can use. However, I think it's still good to basically start with pen and paper um, when you want to create a visualization, because then you can sketch things much faster. You will more likely discard, you know, some designs that are not very helpful. Um, and you can play with it and you're not limited by the, by your knowledge about the tool that you're just concentrated first on the design and then on how to actually implement it in software rather than, you know, doing both at the same time. No, that's a very interesting tip. And, the other thing I, I've, I was just reflecting on Florence's graphs is some of them are not that simple. You, you have to look at them to work out what's going on, but it's all essential to the method, to the message she's giving. There's nothing in there that's there just as superfluous decoration. You know, one of my pet hates is three-dimensional graphs where the third dimension is just drawn in to make it look good and actually it adds nothing. So I think to make sure that every aspect is there for a purpose, is also really good. And as you say, you often have to play around and think of different ways of doing it by sketching out before you get to the one that really conveys the, the aspects of the messages that you're really trying to convey. I, I completely agree with you. I think a good design is not something where you can't add anything anymore. A good design is where you can't take anything away anymore without losing a essential feature. And I completely agree regarding the 3Ds. <laughs> there is, uh, there's lots of, lots of examples of really, really bad visualizations. Just because the software can do it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should use it. Um, I think that's the other nice thing of starting with a pen and a paper, then you are not so likely adding lots of features that are not really yes. helpful. I'd agree with that. You have quite a long career, and, and um, I've talked to the uh, all your achievements in the intro of this uh, uh, interview. If you look into Florence Nightingale, how what does that mean for you personally? I think, firstly, to understand that she was a woman. I mean, I went through university at a time when fewer women than men did. But it was still an option that was open to me. She was a woman at a time when things were far more difficult. And yet she achieved a huge amount. So that's really an inspiration. I think looking at how I'm someone who's worked across sectors, I've worked, my training is mathematics. I've been partly in maths and stats departments, but I've also my whole life been involved in medical schools. I've been involved in drug regulation. So I've moved across worlds. and. Florence did that. So the more I found out about her, the more I've been interested of how she moved between mathematics and the health world and the political world. And then she got alliances with people as and when she needed them. So she's done things on a far greater scale than I did, even though she was an 
arguably a much more disadvantaged position to start with. So I'm really inspired by what she achieved, but also her kind of single mindedness, but on such a range of issues. But yeah, the things she cared about, she found ways of pursuing. How would you see that relate to kind of modern day statisticians? I think there's a lot of specialization and, you know, working on a specific phase for a specific indication, you know, maybe even, you know, for only for within one company. Um, so people get really, really deeply specialized. Do you think that, you know, we should also have more people that cross the different borders? I think we need both. So something that I've heard talked about recently is what you might call the T-shape, a capital T, where you've got a lot of depth, but you've also got breadth. Now, that can sometimes be different people. So yeah, sometimes you can think of that as having some people are the real specialists and other people move between worlds and translate. But equally, for some people, they may have real depth in some subjects, but it's important to be broader. Now, if you're the kind of person that really enjoys knowing a relatively small area in depth, I think it's still really important to keep an eye on what other people are doing from time to time, go into conferences like the PSI conferences, and especially this year's in Barcelona, are good ways of seeing what other people are doing so you don't get too narrow. For other people, that may mean moving around from time to time and getting a variety of experience. But I think sometimes it's just knowing yourself and sometimes it's challenging yourself. If you're normally someone that's a bit moving around, then maybe you should spend a bit of time drilling down in depth on something. Or if you're someone that's very much by nature single-minded and becoming the absolute specialist in some fairly narrow study design in one clinical area, then it can be good to go outside of your comfort zone at least a little bit. Do you have an example for yourself where you went out of, outside of your comfort zone and, and that really helped you to grow? I think probably the most obvious one was when I got involved in drug regulation, because before then, my background had been really statistical epidemiology and I'd done a few trials but not many I would not have considered myself an expert in trials in any shape or form and then I got asked to join one of the committees doing drug regulation in the UK and I really couldn't understand why I was asked but I was really pressed to do it so I agreed to do it I found out later it's because we had a government commitment to increase the number of women on committees and because there weren't too many women in my profession at my stage, I was actually one of the most senior, even though I was quite young and wasn't an experienced trialist. Now, it happened that my background, my good education and my ability to think meant that actually I got on with drug regulation really very well. But that changed my whole career. I moved much more into trials. It's affected the things I've done since. So But I nearly said no, because I thought I was going so far outside my comfort zone. And then I thought, well, I'll try it and just see how I get on. So, so that's just one example. What made you jump over this hurdle and, and go into this project? Also, you were, you know, you were thinking this is quite outside your, you know, your experience. Partly the person who asked me, he was actually the pharmacologist who was chair of that committee. 
Alastair Breckenridge, who later went on to much more senior positions. And he was very persuasive. I think that also meant that I would have support. And indeed, before I actually attended a committee meeting, he got me to read all of the papers and then go and meet with him privately. And we went through and saw what I thought. And he encouraged me to make certain points. I I knew it was interesting and important. I knew that drug regulation was important. I knew at that time we didn't have enough statisticians. In fact, at that time, there were none employed in the MHRA, which is the UK authority. So that's what partly what made me frightened of doing it because of the responsibility. But it also made me aware that it was really important to have a statistician involved. And actually, later on, John Lewis joined the agency, and now we've got a really good team. So I think it was some combination of knowing it was important, having some personal encouragement to do it, and then just taking a deep breath and thinking, okay, it wasn't what I was planning for this year, but yeah, let's just see if it works. Awesome. That's that's a really, really nice example of, of, you know, moving outside of your comfort zone and then growing by that. Uh, And I think the, you know, having these discussions uh, before you jumped, mm-hmm. I think also is something that people can think of if they want to get out of their comfort zone. Can they do anything to prepare for it? Anything that helps them to ease a little bit more into it so that it's not that, you know, abrupt yeah. and then cold water <laughs> kind of thing. Exactly. And if yeah. I think about it, because I've been involved in Ross Disc Society and some of us had written a report saying that we needed more statistical input into drug regulation. And I was a very junior member of that group, but it meant that I was aware of the context. Actually, because I'd not just worked in a very narrow area, I sort of was aware of what was going on. I was then able to make the judgment that this was an important area, have some idea what was involved. Whereas I think if I'd been more narrow and stuck with just epidemiology and not got involved in the Royal Society, Society, I wouldn't have had any idea of what I was doing. So in terms of then going into this uh, clinical development and drug regulation Mm -hmm. area, what from your background helped you to be successful in that area? Partly just the ability to think through what the purpose was and to critique the design. So if if the marketing application was coming through for a particular drug in a particular area, to think through, is this the right collection of studies that make that point if they're asking to be able to use a range of doses, is the evidence there? It was partly actually because I wasn't a specialist that I'd worked in a number of clinical areas. I'd done a lot of work in heart disease, a lot of work in cancer. I'd done some, I later on did some work in cystic fibrosis, but I'd been a statistical consultant for part of my career. And so I dealt with a range of clinical areas. And I also knew how to think about a new area and where to go to find out a bit of background. Because drug regulation, you can be dealing with a complete mixture, everything from sort of a fungal toenail to a life-threatening disease like HIV to a vaccine. And so that ability to move between clinical areas quite rapidly was also vital. I think yeah, your general statistical training helps you understand data and whether it's fit for purpose. So a number of things came together, which may have been why my name had come up, because somebody had obviously suggested me in the first place and must have known that I had some of those skills. So, so And I think that's a really encouraging statement because lots of these skills are, you know, common skills among lots of different statisticians and that will help them to 
go outside of their, you know, comfort zone area, you know, instead of just talking to people within clinical development, maybe also talk to, to people that are later along the line in the, in the more commercial area or people that are more in the earlier development lines and, and, and understand what's going on there and potentially, you know, find an completely new career options, which might be, you know, quite fulfilling. So that's, that's a really good point. I think how about all, let's say these non-technical skills that you, that you learned before you went into the drug regulation area, how have they helped you to succeed in this completely new area? You're absolutely right. There are soft skills, which make a huge difference. I think one is the maybe the most important is the ability to communicate to non-specialists. I've been doing teaching of one sort or another, actually since I was at school, I, I was asked to go and help somebody who was struggling with her exams. She was 16 and I was 18. And my, one of my teachers told me how to explain and what kind of problems she was having. I did a little bit of drama type things when I was at school. So I was used to communicating and being able to, on a committee, to speak to a mixture of people, most of whom are not statisticians, and to explain why this statistical point is really important, or to shut down a discussion on something else to say, look, yeah, that's very interesting, but actually that that's not a deal breaker, is really important. The ability to read quite a large amount of documents and find your way around it, and I've always read a lot, so that was important. But also to talk to people, I used to meet with the statisticians in the agency in the morning to to brief. The ability to listen is something that I think I probably learned a lot doing drug regulation to because to, I learned as much as I gave. And all of those things come together. So the math skills are important, but they're actually quite a small part in being able to be a successful statistician in the context of drug regulation. And I think it's true for any statistician's job, because if you're just good in, let's say, crunching the numbers, but you can't communicate them, you can't help others to understand them, you can't help others to explain it in the background and the context that they are in, you will just not have, you know, do a good job and not be regarded as a valuable team member. So I think that is that is really quite key for for uh, for anybody. Yes, and by the time I joined the drug regulation, I've been working as a statistician in a number of clinical areas. So I think I've been developing and honing those skills, as well as obviously building up my understanding of different sorts of data. But you're absolutely right that they are absolutely key statistical skills. And then the drug regulation committees are just one particular context where you have to use them at really quite a pace, but they are vital to any position. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you're really right. This is not a, you know, a trade you're born with or you're not born with. It's, it's a skill set that you can learn, that you can always improve over time. Um, you know, the, the listening skills that you just mentioned Depending on whether you're more introvert or more extrovert, you'll be better or not as good at that. I think statisticians are very often mm. quite 
good at listening, but you know, listening in terms of really being present with the other person, not thinking about what you want to say next, but really deeply understand him or her is something that requires a lot of attention. So I completely agree. That's a, that's a key skill. Yeah. The other thing I would add to that, and I think statisticians are naturally quite good at it, but sometimes afraid to use it, is the ability to ask questions. So if you don't understand something, to be able to say, I'm not quite understanding why doing this will result in that. If you can ask that question, then either you'll get a good answer or people will say, oh, well, actually, that doesn't really follow, does it? And that changes the conversation. So, And that's a technique that can be very effective in committees. But sometimes people are afraid to express what it can feel like expressing ignorance. But it's a skill that well used can get you a very long way. And statisticians are very good at thinking things through logically and thinking that doesn't quite follow. But uh, So don't be shy about asking would be my advice on that one. Completely agree. Of course, you need to be kind of willing to be vulnerable there, that you say <clears throat> asking this question, maybe it's something that's obvious for others and just not obvious yeah. for you. But I completely agree the the ability for statisticians to think logically is, I think, very often actually undervalued by the statisticians. They think that is, you know, something that everybody can do. Whereas I'm pretty sure that, you know, the statisticians are positive outliers there in the kind of general public. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And the other reason it's a good technique is it's not threatening. If, What you really want to say is, oh, that's a really stupid thing. Obviously, one thing doesn't imply another. That can be threatening. Whereas if, as you say, you say, well, I may just be not understanding, but could you explain it to me? That gives the other person the chance to explain without being you know, put upon or, or being put on the back foot. And that's a much more constructive way of having a dialogue, even if actually they are being rather stupid. Or there's maybe a side condition that enables this kind of, you know, causal thing to happen that you weren't aware about or that may or not, may not be true. So I completely agree. Asking questions is a really good way to, to lead a discussion and, 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 and drive things forward. Is there anything else you, uh, you would add to that? I mean, really just to emphasize that That's how you learn. I think you said something really important a little while ago, which is this is not something that you are born with. It's something we develop. And I sometimes use statistics, the analog that it's a language. Some of us just need to be able to read about it from time to time. Some of us need to be able to go and do really hands-on stuff. Some of us need to communicate. But like any language, the more you practice it, the more fluent you become. And so You shouldn't think you've got to learn it all before you can engage in talking to other people. You just start from where you are and and then ask questions, practice it. But commun yes, communicating is is vital, and statistics is a means of communication when we get it right. But practice, 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 and that way you improve and get better. Yeah, and we can take Florence Nightingale as an inspiration of of communicating clearly, using good visualizations, 
understanding, you know, the background where people are coming from, using techniques that help them to understand what you're seeing and having quite an impact, leveraging her knowledge about politics, um, leveraging her kind of drive to move things forward and having a clear goal in mind when you go into these discussions is, is, is really, really good. Um, we talked about lots of, lots of different things through this interview today. And there was a lot of quite nice things that we can now also expect from the conference where you will give us this, this keynote presentation. And I'm really, really eager to get to Barcelona uh, to see you on stage. So thanks so much for this really, really nice uh, discussion. No, well, thank you. And I'm looking forward to Barcelona. And I think you know, our discussion has illustrated exactly why we're celebrating Florence Nightingale's 200th birthday. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And I'll see you all at the conference in Barcelona, hopefully. Indeed. See you there. This show was created in association with PI. Thanks for you for listening. And thanks to Rain, who helps with the show in the background. Just go to theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about other episodes that will help you to boost your career as a statistician. And please don't forget, tell your colleagues about this podcast. And I hope to see you at the conference because I will be there for sure. We'll have some sessions there. We'll have some nice events there as well as some live podcasting. So see you in Barcelona. And as always... Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.